Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. YouTube Music is a new app that combines everything you adore and expect from a streaming service with the magic of YouTube to bring everything to life. With their YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps. It's so rad. Get music whenever you want it, even if you're offline. Please go download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free, free 30-day trial. Then you just pay $9.99 per month. Terms and restrictions, of course, apply. But this app is super powerful, incredible. It combines all of that stuff you love, okay? So go download it now. Now, here's the show. Hello, everybody. How are you doing this afternoon, evening? I am Ray Harkins. You're listening to 100 Words or Less, but specifically, more specifically, is the series of shows we were doing during the month of October called Be Specific. And this has been a lot of fun. I have gotten a ton of feedback from people on social media, emailing the show, which if you want to do it, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I am pretty punishing on email, so if you email me, you are for sure going to get a response. (laughs) But uh, people have been saying very kind things about it, and they like the, uh, you know, kind of change of pace from the, uh, the, the sort of typical shows that I do and get a little more granular about the music industry as a whole. And that is exactly what we're doing today as well, continuing that, that trajectory of learning about the music industry, but in really, really specific ways. And today is a very good friend of mine. His name is Sean Carano. I've known the dude for, we actually tried to trace it back, I want to say like early 2000s, once I started to work at Century Media Records. Uh, him and I were emailing, he was taking care of a lot of bands and, you know, we kind of got to know each other and met occasionally, uh, you know, over the years at shows and stuff. And just a a great stand-up guy. He's had a really interesting career doing a lot of different things, uh, on the music management side, on the merch side, great stuff. But, uh, now he works at his own company called headphones management, you know, does some work with merch now sees a lot of sides of the industry. And uh, like I said, he was a manager for years, still manages bands, manages bands like uh, Polyphia, uh, Covet, some really cool stuff. But uh, I wanted to bring him on because we were talking about ideas for this show and he was like, you know, I want to kind of focus on what it feels like to, you know, grow a band from, you know, a solid local, you know, maybe headlining local band uh, up to a nationally recognized touring act and, you know, going on festivals and doing all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of intricacies that... You know, many people don't either know about or, you know, don't know when it's like, okay, well, like, I guess now maybe is a time that we consider, you know, going out for a month at a time. Um, So, yeah, it's just super interesting stuff. Sean takes me through a lot of specifics, which is rad, and I appreciate that. So, but let's put a pin in that. I will, I will come back to the idea. You know how these things go. You know what I'm going to say right now. Rockabilia.com. 
PC Jabberjaw is the code that you use for 15% off your order. It is a great company. They have a ton of Halloween-inspired stuff from obviously the spooky bands that you could imagine from, you know, Ghost and Iron Maiden, Misfits, and a lot of Rob Zombie stuff, Slipknot. You get the idea. Uh, But they also have a ton of other great merch from pretty much any band you could possibly imagine. They have over a half a million items, which... You know, like I try to think about what that actually looks like in a warehouse, like a half a million items. Like if you've ever visited a record label or any sort of company that has to warehouse stuff, it it is like it is overwhelming. Like (laughs) this is a complete tangent. But I just remember, I think it was my first year that I started working at Century Media. We had a huge distro in the uh, back of the warehouse, uh, you know, amongst with all of our other releases that we were, you know, not uh, having at our our distributors warehouse. And I had to do inventory on that one year, the first year. And it was, uh, it was, it was a lot. It was, it was painstaking as most inventories are, but, uh, you know, I learned a lot and it was funny because I remember actually finding some old out of print taken stuff that I was able to buy and then in turn sell at a taken show. It was very funny, but anyways, rockabilia.com PC Jabberjaw, use that code for 15% off. And, uh, yeah, it's just a great company support them because they support the show and it just all works copacetically. Okay. Uh, I also, I have to talk about the cave-in show that I went to, uh, just this past weekend at the Wiltern in Los Angeles, California, which if I remember correctly, the capacity on that's like 1800. I could be wrong, but it's a lot. It's a lot of people. The show sold out months in advance. It was a benefit for the family of Caleb Schofield, who, uh, if you missed the news, he, uh, tragically died in a car accident. And it, you know, like it, you can probably dive back into, you know, when that news actually broke. I'm fairly certain I did a, a fairly long monologue about how that kind of felt because, uh, you know, this is a person that's only a couple years older than me. And I watched his band on so many occasions, loved what he did as a musician. Um, I only got to meet him like once extremely nice guy. And that's basically all anybody says about him. And the fact that, you know, he died and leaves a, uh, you know, two kids in his, his, his wake is, uh, it's just rough. It's super rough, but everybody that was there at the show, um, was so excited and it actually, I, there was an ISIS reunion show, like obviously at the same show. Um, it was just a, uh, a, a total time warp and brought me back to a time and a place where, um, yeah, just like going to shows, like that was all that I did, you know? And, uh, that's all many of us do in our late teens, early twenties. And hearing those songs again was awesome. Participating in the celebration of life when you have an artist that impacts you greatly, and then you can always go back to those records. You can always go back to the, you know, books or paintings or whatever it is that the artist puts out there. And I just love that, uh, that sort of cyclical nature of art getting released into the world. So I loved it. It was such a moving evening and I had a great time on it. Caven ruled, Isis ruled, Old Man Gloom ruled, just such good stuff. So yeah, go, go out to some shows, you know, that's all I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> but anyways, getting back onto the subject at hand, Sean Carano, uh, we actually talk a lot about the band that he managed uh, called Whitechapel, which for those of you that are, you know, maybe unfamiliar, uh, band from Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. They, um, you know, kind of came up around that whole sort of deathcore movement in the, uh, you know, early 2000s. And they were a band that uh, signed to Metal Blade Records, had a very successful career, and still has a successful career, as as Sean kind of lays out. And um, it was just really interesting to hear his thoughts on that. So that's what we're doing, okay? And uh, I will talk to you at the end of the episode to tell you who comes up next week, okay? All right, let's do this. (laughs) 
free to uh, introduce yourself, my friend. My name is Sean Carano. I am owner, artist manager at Headphone Management. Um, also owner of Headphone Music and uh, West Coast A&R for Merch Now. Spectacular. And previously, you you did a lot of stuff with Artery? Yeah, previously I was at Artery Foundation. I was the senior vice president. I was there for founder, co-founder, and I was there for over 10 years. Um, before that, I was a tour manager uh, working for the firm, uh, taking care of some of their acts. And before that, I was at Larrikin, which uh, handled acts like Queens of the Stone Age and Tool and stuff like that. But that was very early on, probably like early 2000s, 2000, 2003, something like that. So, Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah you've definitely, I mean, because that's why I, I think you and I obviously first started to deal, each other, deal with each other when I was at Century and yeah. like we were corresponding like that. Um, but yeah, like when I brought this idea to you and you kind of, I think almost immediately we're like, oh, I think like not only is this a cool idea, but like I think this is kind of the angle that we approach the, you know, sort of whatever, zero to 30, if you're talking about a 60 mile per hour yeah, yeah, <laughs> measurement of like, cause you've worked with so many bands that are, you know, like you, whatever that are just like, just now starting to think about going on tour, playing local gigs, like, you know, m- maybe getting a couple people to show up specifically for that band. Um, so I, I guess walk me through like, you know, one or two examples in your head of bands that, you know, you picked up pretty early that you were able to obviously like get signed and just kind of that, that process of taking it a little forward. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, the earliest one would have to be, uh, the best example would have to be Whitechapel. Sure. Um, they were already signed when I started working with them. They were about, you know, six months into their record deal. Okay. Uh, with metal blade, is, right? Yeah, with metal blade. Mm-hmm. Um, this, they were on candlelight before that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I remember, I mean, I was at, obviously at century at that point and I, like that was the, at the era where, every sort of deathcore metalcore band was yeah. being like looked at and being suicide silence totally uh, red mirrored, cord red cord like all that stuff yeah but it was uh i remember Whitechapel coming across our desk and uh, us having conversations with them um but then i totally forgot about the candlelight deal yeah were they managed were they managed before no no they uh they were approached by candlelight and uh they the, the guys were young super young and they did a one album a license they'd already recorded the record got it uh it was uh it was uh, uh just a you know i think they were nine months into that deal and metal blade it, it what happened was uh, uh my lawyer brian christner uh was their lawyer at the time and uh brian uh had advised them because he he was doing like job for a cowboy he was doing yep. all, all kinds of these bands and he saw what was going on and uh they were they were looking for a new deal and brian shopped him around and at the time brian was working with bill uh will barrel or Bill Barrel, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, who's Metal Blade's attorney. Okay. And uh, Brian took the record to Metal Blade and uh, gave it to Mike Faley, and they passed it around as they do. It's a democracy there. And they uh, they decided to approach the band with a deal. I think the band had, like, numerous deals on the table. Uh, Victory, For sure. This is before I was involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victory was really aggressive at pursuing. They actually showcased for Victory. Okay. And, uh, but, you know, we won't go there. Uh, yeah, yeah but, um, but victory. Right? Yeah, 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 but victory. Um, <laughs> so luckily they, they ended up doing the Metal Blade deal. Um, I had heard about the band through my former partner, Eric Rushing, mm-hmm. uh, who's a promoter, and he had had the band through a couple times in Sacramento okay. at the Boardwalk. Um, and uh, he had come to me when I was looking for some new acts, and I was young and uh, just trying to figure stuff out. And he'd said, Hey man, there's this, there's this, and he knew I love metal and mm-hmm. hardcore and stuff. So he's like, Hey man, there's this metal band, Whitechapel. You gotta come see them. There's like 15 year old girls screaming these <laughs> vulgar lyrics at the top of their lungs. Right. Shows. And, and for me, anytime you can get 
the the females interested, uh-huh. then you know it's it's going to sell. Sure. Know, because the women are like very die hard. They don't just get into something, you know. Uh, they they have more commitment. Yeah, yeah, definitely more <laughs> commitment to it. Uh, they buy the merch, you yeah. know, everything like that. And uh, so I went to see them at the boardwalk. They were supporting Too Pure to Die making like a hundred dollars or something that show. Sure. And I'd had some conversations with Alex, the guitar player briefly over the phone. And I think I maybe did one conference call with the band. And like I said, they were super young, like 20, 21, 22 years old. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we met at the boardwalk and after they were done playing, we, they put probably played for like 30 people or 40 people stood out back, gave them my pitch. And, uh, I think right then and there they, or it was the, Oh no, it was the next day. Then they went out to, uh, they came to Southern California to play with one of my clients at the time, the warriors. Sure. And, uh, and they were playing with the warriors and my good friend Javier, who I work with at merch now, mm-hmm. um, the guitar player basically took him out to sushi and, uh, sold them on me. And, uh, they called me the next day and they said, Hey, we want to work with you. Okay. You know, and from there, uh, we went, you know, we decided it was time to do a new record. Um, I worked with metal blade to get them in with Zeus and, uh, they put, uh, this is exile together. Sure. Um, and, uh, from there it was just, you know, it just kind of went, Yeah. you know, that uh, record. I mean, like that, that, that moment where you obviously have your first record kind of, you know, teed up, like that's always the, yeah not only is it really exciting for the band cause they, you know, get a new fresh coat of paint and yeah. like can tour on new songs and stuff, but it's like you, um, yeah, you never, you, it's always that anticipation. Like you never know how, like you can have a feeling going into it, but you never know how ultimately it's going to react. No, we, and we didn't know. We just, you know, I, I was just excited to work with something I was excited about. You right. Know, it was the music. I was really, really into it. And the guys were great, you know, still are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and also working with, you know, going from Candlelight, who, you know, I think they hired outside publicity. There's literally like one person running the U.S. office. Right. Um, and uh, it, going to Metal Blade, where they have just this in-house team of people and people who've been there for a long time. Totally. Um, people who over the years I've built personal relationships with. Um, who really took a hands-on approach to the band and really like everything I said, there's a democracy. Mm -hmm. So we would all sit down, we would all discuss the records, we would all discuss the plan. And that was really my first experience at sitting down and discussing a rollout for a record. Right. So Metal Blade kind of set the template for me on how to do this in the future, like how this is to be done properly. Sure. That includes like flying down and meeting with the label, you know, because at the time I was based in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we put the we put the record together and uh, couldn't have been happier with it. And uh, Metal Blade suggested David Brodsky to do the first video uh, for the title track. And they uh, they I think our budget was like three thousand dollars or something. That's like that. yeah. It, and it's so funny too because like those those are the days where it's just like you had. I mean, I think the largest budget that I had to do a video for was like yeah, it was like seventy five hundred dollars yeah. because it was like that was obviously the era in which no one really knew where to play the stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, sort of Headbangers Ball, I guess. You hoped you hoped you got Headbangers right. Ball. If you got Headbangers Ball, it was like the end-all, be-all for that. It was, the, it was worth it, yeah, yeah. You know, you're like, oh, my God, we're on Headbangers Ball. Did you see it? Right. And people would stay up late. They would, they would, you know, DVR it or whatever, and that was just the big deal if you were getting Headbangers Ball. Totally. Um, and so uh, they did the video at Brodsky, and I remember – uh, getting a call from from Dave and he was saying, uh, "Hey man, you're gonna love this video. The guys just and I'm like, it's just a performance video in like a basement, <laughs> right? It was like a basement in like Pennsylvania or something like that or New York. Of course, the guys drove from Tennessee. That was part of the budget too. They drove from Tennessee. To they use five hundred dollars in gas, yeah, right? Yeah, right. exactly. And there's six of them in this van, <laughs> right? You know, plus they had to bring all their gear in the trailer, so there's like backline for six people. Sure. Um, 
and they they uh, they do this video, and the one thing they did was there's just this part where this huge breakdown comes in, mm-hmm. and all in sync, unscripted whatsoever, they all just proceed to body bang. Okay, and I saw the video, and I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> totally, in a music video. And to be honest with you, that's just what they became known for. That's true. And yeah, they <laughs> everybody wanted to see the body bang, and, right? And it kind of you know then became there from there became like crab core and like stuff like that. Everybody mm-hmm. made fun of, but it was just like at every show when they would play that song, they would end with it, right? And they would have to do the body bang, and kids would just lose their minds. <laughs> totally, they're like, I saw that on the video. Yeah, yeah. I want to see you do that now. Yeah, so it was it was perfect. It was like the perfect storm. It was unscripted. It was just you know whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, they started creating buzz and you know like i said working with metal blade was pretty amazing um mike Faley was really instrumental in getting us a lot of our tours early on right you know supported on earth when on earth was at their heyday selling a couple hundred thousand records a unit or, or a couple hundred thousand units a record right um job for a cowboy um red cord totally um, well yeah that, and that, that's the thing where it's just like the you know, because so many people, uh, you know, I mean, still to this day are always like, like, well, why, why do you work with labels? It's yeah. like, you know, when you can put out your own record, whatever, like there's a million different arguments on like, obviously why that is probably not the best idea if you're unorganized to put out your own record or whatever. Yeah. But the fact that you could plug into a community yeah. and you could, you could immediately be in conversations where previously you weren't. Well, especially a label that's been around for 30 years. Right. You know, who's discovered bands like Metallica and Slayer. And, and stuff like that, you know, they obviously had connections. And, and even Brian Slagle, the owner, would make calls on our behalf. That's great. And, and he would fight for stuff for us. You right. Know? And, um, you know, I, I would literally speak to Mike three to four times a day, five to six days a week, even on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And that was because um, he was just so, like, into it and he's so into all the bands. I mean, the guy's probably, like, 60 now or something like that. And totally. he's still just as energetic as he was and just right. as into things as he, he has been. Um, but yeah, they were, so we, we did all those tours and then, uh, I remember we did, um, we did warp tour mm-hmm. and I remember going to meet with Kevin about, this was my first pitch ever for warp tour. Sure. And, uh, Mike Faley actually went with me because I'd never met Kevin before. And we went to, we went to the barbecue spot below his office and we oh, sat sure. down and Kevin, we had some small talk and it was basically like, Kevin was like, all right, well, what do you got for me? And I said, all right, Kevin, you know, this hasn't been done before on your tour, but how about Whitechapel? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me a little sideways at first and kind of said, well, you know, do you think they're a little heavy or, you know, whatever? And I said, but the scene is just, is just popping, mm-hmm. you know? And it was, uh, the time suicide silence. I think they were at, uh, they were at on the cycle. They were like 60, 70,000 sold on that first record. Totally. Um, a mirror was at like 50 or 60,000 sold on that record. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, t- I told him, I said, you know, to, to bring a balance to it, you should really, put these three bands on your tour. You should put Whitechapel, Amir, and Suicide Silence on the tour. Mm-hmm. And he thought about it, and, you know, he said he really liked the idea, and he, you know, took his notes and stuff like that. And uh, then you wait. Of you, course. You, then you wait. You wait your, it's, it's like... Two, three months. Yeah, yeah two yeah. or three months, and you're just wondering, what am I doing next year? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and always the biggest mission, um, as, especially developing artists back then, was, like, getting Warp Tour in, in that scene. Of course. Artists, in the Screamo punk rock hardcore metal scene it was you've got to get warped tour. that's seven weeks of income mm-hmm. it's gonna be your biggest tour of the year you're gonna play in front of thousands and thousands of people pretty much no matter what band you are totally and uh we uh we 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 i remember we were being looked at for some other tours and um just out of nowhere we got the offer 
And it wasn't for a lot sure. know, because we weren't a proven band in that scene. No, no. They're probably like, yeah, here's, here's, you know, a thousand bucks or 500 bucks yes, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was 500 bucks. I sure. Yeah. Yeah. First offer. Right. And, uh, there was no, there was no budging. We were one of the last offers. And, uh, then I talked to Mirror's manager and I talked to suicide silence's manager and they had gotten offers also. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, yeah, we just, uh, we took it. I, I remember talking to the band and I was like, Hey, like, I know this seems pretty rough. You know, we're going to have to do this. And at the time the bandwagons didn't exist. Right. So we knew we had to do it in a bus. Of course. Um, so I was like, Hey, we're, you know, we're going to try and do this, you know, on $500 a day. I mean, and that basically takes care of just the bus rental. Totally. So that doesn't <laughs> include crew. That doesn't include that might've included paying the driver that didn't include gas, mm-hmm. didn't include your merch bill, didn't include tour insurance, which you have to carry a million dollar policy. When so you go on Warped Tour, when yeah, you, yeah. When you go on Warped Tour, when you have a bus, you have to carry, and just to be on the tour, you have to carry a million dollar policy. Right. So, um, you know, all this stuff. And then there's, there's commissions, there's agent commissions, there's management commissions, there's things like that. Right. But I just felt we could do it. We could do the tour and they went out there and they destroyed Sure. You know, they played in front of thousands. I remember the first show was in, uh, I think it was Pomona. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, yeah, I remember, I remember I, I rode with the band out to Warp Tour, spent a week on the bus with them, and we did some off dates. And uh, we we got there, and it was, you know, it was like kids on skateboards and, you know, in the parking lot and all these guys who'd been on the tour before. And right. like that. We kind of, like, definitely were, like, kind of stuck to our group with the Mirror and, and Suicide Guys sure. and stuff like that. And I remember that first show watching them. I think their set was like two o'clock in the afternoon or something like that. One o'clock. Right. Something like that. And, uh, they, I, there must've been like 5,000 people, you know, on the blacktop watching them play. And I think we did like something like four grand in merch that day. Totally. Day one. L- yeah. Large, like largest you probably ever seen. Yeah. 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 Largest merch we'd ever done to date. You right. Know? And you know, you know, averaging on the other tours, you were stoked if you did a thousand dollars a show. Absolutely. You know, um, and so we we did it, and uh, they I, I left them on, on the tour, and they I never I didn't hear anything during the whole tour. I didn't, no complaints, no yeah. nothing. No, no, get, no news is good news. Well, the only complaint I did hear about was having to wait in line for catering. Sure. So right. that, that was that was the big that was the big complaint was oh man we got to wait in line an hour for catering in the ninety degree heat you know right I mean? that, that's the worst thing you got to do that's the worst thing you got to do yeah you're fine so they did that tour. Um, they, after paying everything and like, so the bus was really expensive and they did have a full crew found out we didn't need a front of house guy really overpaid for a front of house guy because we thought we needed somebody when the guys on that tour know the, know that they're system. dialed in. Yeah. Right. They know the system better. Probably could have saved a few, definitely could have saved a few thousand bucks there. Sure. But at the end of the tour, we ended up kind of breaking even, which I think when your expenses are roughly a hundred grand, you know, and you come back breaking even, sure. you're making 500 a show. Yeah. That was, that that's was the goal. Yeah. yeah that yeah, was yeah. good. That was good. And they, they paid me, they paid their agent. They, you know, they took everyone was square and right. nobody, nobody complained in a world where everyone is confined to their homes. Society begins its largest bin watch to date in the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown... 
there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, and... Uh... Well, because, I mean, at that, at that point, too, it's like when... You are a band. I mean, labels have the same discussions, you know, management, like everybody's kind of working together on this thing where it's just like, all right, you get this offer and you really have to like, you know, you crunch the numbers and you kind of figure it out. But then ultimately you're just like, well, this is going, perception wise, this is going to make a difference. You know, you're going to sell a lot of records. You're going to play in front of a lot of people. And it's like, once you're on there and like you're in the middle of a tour or whatever, you just feel the energy and the momentum. Yeah. And then that way you're just like, oh, yeah, I broke even. But like it feels like oh, all of a sudden all these things are starting to happen in the future. Yeah, well, and, and I came to the last couple of days of the tour and they're running around saying hi to people in, in bands you'd never even think they would totally, you know, talk to and, <laughs> right, and right, stuff right, right. like that. And they're hanging out and sit, hugging people goodbye and, you know, saying their goodbyes and, and stuff like that. So definitely after, you know, it's, it's rock and roll summer camp, you know, punk rock summer camp. Totally. You know, so by the end of that, you know, they made a lot of new friends and a lot of new fans, you know, even with just in the bands there. Right. And, you know, so, um, you know, after that, um, went through, they did a, uh, what did they do? They did a, they did a fall headliner, okay. which we, you know, it was like 500 caps and it did really well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I don't remember too much after what we did. After, I was trip, did dates with Trivium and Chimera. Sure. Went overseas for the first time. Um, had some success there, you know, and the, really the other, the elder bands like the, you know, started taking notice and mm-hmm. um, started getting some really good offers from some other acts. But then came the problem in the fall of like, okay, what are we doing the next summer? Mm-hmm. And that was when we had heard rumors of a tour called Mayhem coming together. Sure. And from that, as soon as we heard that coming together, uh, Metal Blade and uh, and myself and our agent, uh, Matt Pike at the time, we all really just put the pedal to the metal and did everything we could to get a slot on that tour. Sure. And uh, long story short, we did get the tour. We're the opening band on the tour. Right. The, the inaugural, uh, the inaugural uh, Mayhem. And that was with, you know, Cannibal Corpse, Behemoth, Slayer. Um, uh, I think Rob Zombie may have been on that first one, I too. think so, yeah. Um, and uh, Trivium and uh, just, just such a great lineup. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, seeing Cannibal during the day, it's pretty amazing. Behemoth, that was the first time I'd ever seen Behemoth. Yeah. And seeing those guys in their corpse paint. <laughs> totally. With their, like, you know, biceps and everything, like, warming up backstage was just super intimidating. Yeah, yeah. But going and doing that tour is what taught that band how to go to the next level. Sure. Cause they went from look at being a club act to now they're on these massive stages playing in front of even five, 10,000 people a day. Cause people that second stage main stage didn't even start until second stage was done. Right. Whereas, you know, traditionally like an Ozfest, people are bouncing back and forth between, between stages, stages sure. all day long. And some people just give up yeah. and camp out on the lawn <laughs> right. until the main stage bands go on. But everybody was getting there at, you know, they're going on, I think, chapel's going on at one o'clock and people were showing up at 11. It's amazing. And, and you know, whereas like I'd actually done Ozfest as a tour mm-hmm. and I watched kill switch engage play at nine o'clock in the morning to 20 people. Of course. Right. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Because the curtain yankers for, yeah, yeah. for 20 minutes, you <laughs> right. know, and, um, with a five minute changeover, yeah. you know, and, 
And so I, at first I was like, oh man, I'm really worried about it. it's going to be a situation like that. But, you know, John Reese and Kevin and everybody involved made sure that everybody played in front of people. Mm-hmm. And they made sure, because I think they'd seen that happen to other bands. Sure. And, and they'd had bands on, on OzFest and stuff like that before where that for half the tour it was a 75K buy-on. You know, yeah, that's all. Oh, I totally forgot about yeah, those. I tour, yeah, I tour managed a band on the tour to do half the tour. It was a two month tour uh-huh. to do half of it on the second stage. It was a seventy five k buy on. Right to do the whole tour, it was one hundred and fifty k buy on. And that and that was just and like twenty that, minute set. God, it was just. I mean, that was like straight up cash. Yeah, no, like was, that wasn't no, like a, no, that hey, was, we're going to spend seventy five thousand no, dollars in marketing. No, no, no. That was the, the marketing was you were on the tour. Yeah, you know, and and I remember doing the tour as a tour, not to backtrack here, but I remember no, doing fine. that tour as a TM and I remember we were coming out and uh, it was like corn was on it, Ozzy. Sure. Um, and then the second stage was just a flood of new metal bands. Oh, totally. And halfway through, not even halfway. Oh, Manson was on the main stage. Right. Um, uh, not even halfway through the first leg of the tour, we wake up and there'd be one bus gone. Yep. Be another bus gone two days later or two bands would jump on one bus together. Sure. And it was all these new metal acts uh, who had gotten tour support from Geffen and yeah, everybody who was just that. spending money indiscriminately. Yeah, literally yeah, yeah. spending. You know, you figure 150k to buy onto the tour. Then you're talking another 100, 100 plus k for the bus. Right. Plus your crew, plus per diems. Your off dates. You're lucky to fill anything <laughs> because of radius clauses. Totally. Um, where you're making 500 bucks. You know, it may not even be worth doing the off date. Right. Um, and uh, and I remember I remember the vote. The, the, there was a big vote at the beginning of the tour of who was going to be the first two bands off the tour. Oh. And, and the vote was uh, Kill Switch Engage and, okay. and Shadows Fall. Oh wow! And when we left the tour, we left about two thirds of the way of tour because our time was up on it. We had we were going out to do another tour. Sure. Um, those were like two of the only bands left on left the there. Yeah, yeah, left on the tour. And like I said, they were playing at nine o'clock in the morning some days. Totally, that's just what you did. Yeah. And uh, but then you know, fast forward, you know, back to the mayhem thing. Um, you know, it was just it was perfect. You know, every day the guys went on. It was like this kind of we didn't play in front of anybody. We didn't play in front of anybody. And they go up on stage and there'd be five thousand people there. Right. You know, and they do five thousand in merch. You know, and do you so like when like kind of you know putting a pin on that was do you feel like that um you know like when do you feel is that kind of like turning point for a band in regards to like you know whatever the money that they're making from the door as far as guarantees are concerned? Oh, like, it was five hundred dollars. It was five hundred bucks. Okay, again. Okay, but like when, I mean, when do you like? I, I guess like you know when you're when you're sending out you know a band on whatever their first headliner um or their support tours um. You know, like when, when do you kind of see that sort of, and I know this varies, so yeah. you, you don't have to be um, like super specific, but like, you know, when do you see that turning point for bands where it's just like, okay, once they're seeing, you know, a thousand to $1,500 a night, like that's all of a sudden when things kind of start to shift where the band can actually come home with money. Well, because we were on Mayhem, I, I think actually the main, af, it was after Mayhem was when uh-huh. we did the dates with Trivium. Okay. That's when it was. Okay. Um, we, we got a really good offer from Tim Bohr for the Trivium tour. Okay. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, Matt Pike being such good friends with Tim. But sure. also you couldn't ignore the fact that. This band was worth tickets. Was yeah. Yeah. Four or 500 tickets at the time. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and also, um, uh, Matt from Trivium was a big fan. Sure. You know, so, um, and Matt's, Matt's younger, you know, he's been in the scene since he was 15 years old. Right. Um, Matt really liked him and Mark from Chimera was a big fan and uh, I think at the time they shared management. Right. Um, 
and uh, or no, they didn't share management, but they both bands were big fans, and they were going out, and we got a really good offer sure. from them, and then Trivium offered uh, us a UK run too, which the band's worth a lot of tickets in the UK, mm-hmm. so we just we took them, we couldn't we couldn't ignore it, we took them as more money than they'd made on a support tour ever, okay, and uh, and uh, then after that we went in and we we you know we set up um, we set up. Uh, uh, the the headliner for the next year. We're like, sure. All right, we're going to go out. We're going to do this headliner. We're really going to see what the band is worth. Right. And we went out. We we did the tour with Kelly Cat from Live Nation, and Pike put it together. And uh, we we had it was an Acacia Strain, mm-hmm. um, Impending Doom, uh, Chelsea Grin, and I Declare War. Sure. You know, or oh, no, not not Impending Doom, Vale of Maya. Okay. Um, which Vale and Chelsea were two up and coming bands. Vale had been around a little longer. Yeah. Acacia Strain had obviously been established for a while. Mm-hmm. We went out and we did, you know, 700 to 1,000 cap rooms. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the guys did it in a van and trailer because we were like, hey, you know, you really want a bank. Like, this is what you're going to do. So totally. it's six of them plus Luke Buckby doing front of house, mm-hmm. um, our tour manager and a merch guy. So nine people in a 15 passenger van for six weeks. Damn. Yeah. In the winter. So February, February, March. Yeah. And, uh, cause I remember we wrapped up around South by Southwest or just past South by Southwest. And, uh, yeah, uh, they, they made more money on that tour than they'd ever made. And the tour did 93% business. That's amazing. So that means 93% of the shows sold out or oversold. Right. So they made a lot of back end. The merch was amazing. The tour just went, you know, crushed and that set them up for you know from for the future sure um, well because yeah once you i mean once you go out in your first headliner and you're not <clears throat> you're not you know burning your bridges where you're putting in too big of rooms and yeah. you know promoters are just like oh dude there's no way like you know you did 350 tickets in a 700 cap room like yeah. well, i'm not gonna put i'm not gonna either give you that much money or then no we're not gonna work with you this time through yeah you gotta prove yourself yeah exactly and they'd proven themselves and, uh, you know, then it was time to, you know, work on some new music mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we'd gotten some other tours. I, I kind of always track where our tour. No, no. There. It's yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, just to, just to kind of like, you know, put it in a nutshell, right. You know, from that point on the band didn't headline, I think for at least another four years. Okay. Something like that. For wow. Maybe, maybe even close to five years. Sure. Just be, just because all these cool support tours would come up. They literally all these cool support tours would come up, and the offers just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. Everybody wanted them on the tour, uh-huh. and it got to the point to where it was like, we can either go support and play in front of a new crowd mm-hmm. and make new fans and play with some of the and the openers below us are younger and bringing in new fans. Right. And or we can make a little bit more money mm-hmm. and go headline and possibly run the risk of drawing less or decreasing our value. Sure. So, so the band really stayed protected for a number of years. Interesting. Um, and you know, obviously, people like that headlining money and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But I think because they were just not over toured um, in that department. Uh, it set them up for where they're at now. Right. You know, I don't work with the band anymore. I haven't for a few years. Sure. But now they're able to go out and headline festival tours and they're able to go out, you know, they just did a, a co-headliner with black Dahlia murder in the, the house of blues of orange County show did 2000 people. It's unbelievable. You, you know what I mean? And this yeah. is, this is 10 years into the 11, 11 years into their career. Yeah. 
you know, they're selling out 2000 cap rooms. Yeah. That's, that's impressive. You know, so it's able, it's been able to like maintain its momentum. Um, as far as I know, a couple of the guys have day jobs, you mm-hmm. know, which when they're home, which is just like, uh, Alex cuts hair, you know, so he's able to do a schedule around something, yeah, yeah, something they just, enjoy. It's yeah, just yeah. something he, yeah, he, he learned, <laughs> he learned to cut hair on tour. That's great. You know, I bought him his first barber chair, Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so, um, it's really been, they've really been able to just maintain. And, you know, another thing we didn't touch on was, you know, they've also had other revenue streams, Sure. you know? So one of the big things that I really emphasize early in a band's career is building the web store, right? you know, and, uh, not just throwing some t-shirts in and seeing what happens, but, you know, making sure there's new designs or the biggest selling designs are on new garments every three months. You okay. Know, uh, that's one thing. One of the reasons I ended up at Merch Now, just because of my, I'm pretty savvy when it comes to, you know, navigating the the retail business and the and the web business and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, early in their career, they 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 got a lot of shirts in the Hot Topic. Sure. You know, and those checks, dude, those, those are huge. Those were huge checks. Yeah. Know? I remember, I remember when I was at Century, we had, um, you know, cause of course every label that signs a band always obviously gets, you know, whatever, two, three, four merch designs. Yeah. And I remember, I think it was Arch Enemy, I want to say, where it was like one of, and this was like 2004 maybe. And so it was like, they, you know, they placed a, God, it was either like a two or 3000 piece order. And this, and the way they set it up to me was very much just like, yeah, this is the, this is like our, our West coast buy on. And yeah. I was just like. The the band we've never sold three thousand shirts even though the band was v- very large yeah we've never sold three thousand shirts at one fell swoop yeah in our in, in yeah. the you know Century Media web store and it was like yeah the check was like I mean yeah I, I can't even I want to say it was like yeah twenty twenty five grand but it was just like you know and they were paying like I don't know whatever three or four dollars a unit but we we're just like we don't care like it's yeah. costing us two dollars that's unbelievable yeah I mean it became once once Hot Topic bought into the band yeah it it was like it was you know we we found our designer that could, could really nail everything we wanted. Cause for a long time it was like, okay, we're just going to buy a bunch of designs to see what they take. Yeah. But then once the band had really found their vision uh-huh. and, and discovered where they wanted their brand to go, um, we were able to just nail it, you know, and we had, uh, you know, working with those guys, you know, they had a really great vision and, you know, a lot of it would just come come from like sitting around in the back of the bus, you know, smoking pot. Sure. You know, and they'd be like, Hey, I think this would look great on a t-shirt. Yeah. And lo and behold, it looks Let's try it out. They tried it out and hot top would buy three or 4,000 designs. <laughs> or, or, yeah. Yeah. Units of the design. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so once we found that, we found our designer and we started doing it, it, it really became like, okay, every three months, there's going to be new designs in the store, whether it's two or three. We're going to take the existing designs from two or two two times ago. Mm-hmm. We're going to put those on a hoodie this time, or a long sleeve, or a baseball tee, or a beanie, or a, a, a snapback, or or maybe we'll do keychains. And we're going to do a limited run of these keychains. Right. And, we, and the thing is, with the limited run stuff, we always did high quality items. Mm-hmm. You know, we never never cheaped out. So the guys would always want samples and things like that. We did these great keychains. They were like bottle openers. Okay. And they had a, their symbol is a is the saw blade with the three stars from the Tennessee state flag in the middle. Oh sure. So that was became their symbol. We would put that on shirts without even a logo. Right. That would just be the shirt. People would know. Yeah. So we did those. We did pint glasses. Uh, we did uh, bico or not bico. We did lighters. We did right uh, flags. The wall flags. The, the, those things sold for. We were. I think our our cost per unit was like $11 mm-hmm. and we're selling them for like 60 bucks, you know, because they were the, and they're like these six foot flags and we're getting 
you know, as soon as social media started kind of popping a little more, we're seeing kids posting on Facebook and Instagram, like hanging these flags outside of their houses. It's insane, dude. You know, and, <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and stuff like that are hanging up in their bedroom. And, you know, they were kind of on the forefront of a lot of the, those items that other bands started picking up and putting in their stores, you know, right. Merch now would say, Oh, well, Whitechapel sold 400 of these flags. Maybe it'll work. Maybe on should. Other of course. Bands. Yeah. Maybe well, if you have, vi- right. If you have visibility yeah. on what is working for other bands, like you, yeah, there's no reason why you wouldn't be like, Oh yeah. How about you guys try this? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it just worked out. It worked out great. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and, and I'm really happy those guys have been able to maintain that. Right. Um, their, their web store still does amazing business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and their, their brand is maintained. Their, their draw has gone up. Right. You know, they're making more in guarantees and they're 11 years into their career. Yeah. You know, and this is a, a death core band, six guys from Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. And this should like, you know, theoretically, like trend wise, it, it, it's over, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it like people have moved on from that. Yeah. But, but I think one thing that we were really smart about was after doing the warp tour and after doing some of those tours with some of those bands, you know, mm-hmm. they, they did an asking Alexandria tour, sure. with like motionless and white. They got a lot of flack for that, but they went and played in front of 2000 people a night, totally 2000 new fans. Yeah. And people had never heard like, this is the heaviest thing they've heard. Exactly. And, and they took some of those fans and those people become lifelong fans. Right. And, but then, you know, doing like hate breed tours and then doing a guar tour right. and doing a devil driver tour and, and, and going out and they did, at least two more mayhems, mm-hmm. you know, where they got bumped up higher and higher and their guarantees got higher and higher. And then they did, they did a cut. What was like, I think it was not that they did the la- the warp tour before this one. Sure. And their guarantee on that tour was amazing. Yeah. It was, it was huge. Sure. And not to mention merch. And it was like, they're like, they're probably their highest grossing tour ever. Right. You know, and it's just really nice to see, you know, something you put eight years into, you know, still going. Right. You know? Totally. And, and great guys too. Like, right. Yeah. Amazing, yeah, yeah. amazing guys, wonderful people, you know? Um, but yeah, it's just, it's great. And it's, you know, it's translated with my other acts, mm-hmm. you know, um, Polyphia yep. is, is something I do. I've kind of, kind of drifted out of the metal world. Um, and I work with a lot of guitar virtuoso people like Yvette Young yep. and Covet. And, uh, uh, I work with a hip hop act called delivery boys out of Brooklyn. Okay. Um, I just picked up another act called ballroom. Okay. Um, which is some, uh, a DJ named Y2K and, uh, this, uh, this personality, uh, he's, he's kind of in that little Aaron kind of crew of, uh, hip hop, okay. uh, sc- uh, emo hip hop, uh, sure. named smart death. Um, but you know, Polyphia has really opened the door for me to work with those acts, Okay. you know, because they, when I picked them up, uh, I actually saw them. They had, they, I saw them, I found them on metal sucks Okay. on, on somebody just blogged about them and they're instrumental. And I listened to their first EP and I thought it was decent. And I had actually missed the boat on periphery and uh, Whitechapel had said, you really need to pick up this band periphery. You really need to pick them up, but they didn't have a singer at the time. Okay. And I'd said, Oh, this is instrumental. This isn't going to go anywhere. Right. Well, yeah, I was proved extremely wrong on that one. <laughs> yeah. So, but you never um, know. Yeah. Hindsight's yeah, yeah. 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I didn't want that to happen again. Right. And so I, uh, I, I messaged him on Facebook and we talked back and forth and the guys were like 16, 17 at the time. Yeah. And, uh, they, um, I, I went, I flew to Dallas to ride with Whitechapel for some of the asking Alexandria dates. Mm-hmm. And Mike Zemer had put Polyphia on as the opener in Dallas for that show. Okay. So I said, Oh, well I might as well check them out. I've never seen them. Sure. Which was a, you know, big trend with a lot of us managers in the two thousands was because of social media, we would pick up a lot of bands without ever seeing them. Right. And so 
Um, I go to see him and I remember I watched probably four or five songs and I was like, okay, they are actually playing their instruments. They are very good. You know, we'll, we'll do this. Sure. And, uh, you know, they sat around, they, they about, they were about to graduate high school. This was in May. So they were about, they were like a few weeks from finishing high school. And, uh, uh, they, uh, they came to me and they said, all right, well, we're ready to do this. We're ready to do this, but we don't want to be a metal band anymore. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, you know, be whatever you want to be. You know, it's your decision. They're super young, you know, so tastes evolve and things sure. like that. Um, they didn't want to be periphery. They didn't want to be animals as leaders. They, they didn't want to be, you know, any of those bands anymore. And uh, they said, we want to be pop. Okay. You know, and I said, okay, you want to be instrumental pop? Be instrumental pop. Right. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And, and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, let's so, hear. Let's hear what you got. Yeah, let's yeah. hear what you got. So they uh, they crowdfunded uh, their record. Okay, and um, they got a lot of features from known guitar players uh, on the on the record, and they put this album out, and it just popped. Mm-hmm. You know, they put out, and they've always had a great vision. Uh, the videos are always like their treatments and stuff like that. And, uh, they put this pop record out and it did so well. It did really well that I, uh, partnered with equal vision on licensing it and re-releasing it. Okay. And then the re-release did really well. Were you and you were working with them when you crowdfunded the record? Uh, they, or, yeah, they, yeah, I was working with them when they crowdfunded it. Got it. Got um, it. I think they raised like 40 or 50 grand. I was going to say like, and, and, and did you like, um, and that's because they're YouTube, they had a strong YouTube base. Okay. Because of doing playthrough videos Got it. and stuff like that. You know, those kids just watch these videos over and over because they want to learn what they're playing. Sure. So they had, they were through their YouTube following and they had already started to build a Twitter following and Instagram was just kind of becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, but Facebook was more their focus at the time. And they, they, did they, uh, they, I mean, I obviously they played live before, but that wasn't a real they central. Never toured, f- never toured. Okay. Never toured, just local shows. Sure. So, they were able to raise four. It was like, I think it was like 40 grand. Yeah. They were able to raise 40 grand without ever playing an out of town show. And, uh, uh, so they raised the money. We, I, I partnered with equal vision to license the record. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time I'd moved on from artery to, to work for equal visions management company, Royal division. Sure. And, uh, we worked that record and it had, the band did some tours and they went out for the first time and they were miserable. And, they were uh, like, oh, this is what touring yeah, is. This yeah, this is what touring is. Um, they bought their first van uh-huh. um, and they went out and they did it and they worked hard and they really got to develop their vision. And, you know, I think their first tour, I, I was like, you guys need to dress differently. You know, it's a terrible idea on my part, but I told them they need to wear suits on stage. Okay. Because it was prog. It was instrumental. You know, sure. I was just like, you got to stand out. And so they did that. 
and they, they didn't complain about it. They they wore them, but they then they realized they that defi- that they needed an image. Right. They couldn't just be four dudes up on stage wearing band T-shirts. Sure. You know, because that's just boring. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's any local band. Totally. Know, and any metal band I'd have worked with. Period. You right. Know? Um, and I'd actually kind of gotten that idea from Whitechapel because at one point that band decided to stop wearing band T-shirts and they just started to go with all all black. Right. You know. Um. So Polyphia kind of sculpted their image around just looking at what other people were wearing and you start wearing button ups. And, uh, now it's evolved into what it is now, which is they actually wear their own merch on stage, right. um, which is their thing. And, and it works because sure. they're constantly promoting themselves. So, right. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, uh, they, they worked that record. It, it, it did amazing. And we started building the web store, Yeah, you know, early on. Like what, what would be, what was, uh, you know, like obviously they sold through their, their records when they did the crowdfunded stuff, but you know, like when, I guess what would you define or what they defined as like amazing when you re-release the record and you're like, Oh, like we did, you know, whatever a hundred units first. I can't even believe oh, that. It was more, it was more than that. Yeah. It, it was, uh, we did, we did, I think it was like a thousand units or something like that. It's crazy. And, uh, uh, then we realized that we had this big market for vinyl. Mm-hmm. You know, the band sells an insane amount of vinyl. Right. Um, every time we put a variant out, it just sells out. We'll do 500 of a, of a variant and it'll sell out. You know, we're doing pre-orders right now for the new record and the variants are just selling out. Yeah. And it's, I think we have six or seven different variants for this record, you know? And, uh, you know, they, they toured hard and, and we, and we worked that web store and, and, you know, Tim in the band is really, he does, does all the merch designs. Okay. Um, he's, does a lot of the art direction and, uh, he, you know, he's him and him and Scott are at the time were the main writers and mm-hmm. now it's more of like a group thing. Sure. You know, as everybody's evolved and we got the drummer that we're happy with and stuff like that. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's really come together in the last eight years, you know, I, or said it's been seven years with them. Right. You know, and I, I going on eight and I, uh, you know, there's, it just, it just keeps climbing. Yeah. You know, they, they were, they were, like I said, they were supporting this band and that band playing chain reaction, mm-hmm. you know, and you're hoping those chain reaction shows sell out totally. to where now they're going out on a headliner this fall with two support bands mm-hmm. and they're going to be in a bus and they're playing 700 to 1,000 cap rooms. Which is crazy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, their gross on the tour is pretty astounding. Sure. You know, and that doesn't even include merch. Right. You know, so it's like, you know, from a f- from four kids from Dallas who I found on a blog, mm-hmm. you know, to do, who never played a show outside of Dallas. Right. You know, to now they're, you know, they're worth 1,000 tickets in Japan. Yeah. They're worth 500 tickets in the U.K., you know, they're going to go play the VH1 festival in India for 25,000 people. Sure. You know what I mean? So it's like, this is, this is, it's, it's just natural progression. Right. But it, 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 the thing that strikes me about, I mean, bands like, you know, bands of that ilk and genre, it's so, um, because it, 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 like, even though they are ostensibly large, yeah. From the general view of most people, just be like, oh, I, yeah, I've heard of the band, but yeah. there's like, but the people that are engaged with that type of, you know, instrumental music, yeah. like, are so passionate about it, yeah. and it's it just, it's such a, it, I, I honestly don't think most people, especially from like a music journalist standpoint, like it just gets short shrift. No one pays attention to it. Well, yeah, and the one thing with that band is, you know, early on we were really careful with the touring. We were actually we weren't careful with the touring. Okay. Because we didn't have room to be careful. We, sure. We needed to take whatever tours we could get. Totally. And people just wanted them on tours. And I think one of their first tours was the Contortionist, which made complete sense. Mm-hmm. Um, did a couple other tours that maybe didn't make sense. One tour we weren't really sure about was an August Burns Red tour, and it was August Burns Red. Every time I die, stick to your guns. 
polythia uh-huh. and an opener. Okay. And we stood out like a, cause this was on the pop record. Yeah. So they stood out like a sore thumb on this tour, sure. but every single night stick to your guns. Every time I die and August burns red, giving it up to polythia. Oh, I'm sure. Stick to your guns, especially, Yeah. you know, Jesse and Josh up there every night saying, give it up for polythia. Those guys are amazing. Right. You know, and that made those knuckleheads in the crowd, like take, the co- they take, co-signed take, them. Yeah. yeah. Take notice like, Oh, well they're cool with them. So they're now they're cool with us. Right. You know, we do see some of these kids come, but also one thing about them because their YouTube following is they also bring a unique fan base. Sure. You know, I think we're at like 200 K on YouTube now. Right. Uh, subscribers. And, uh, you know, I've been to these shows and these are, these are people that don't go to shows. I was going to say, these are people that, that are, are coming out specifically, obviously to see that band. Yeah. And I know that seems like, yeah, of course, oh, that's bring, ob- it seems obvious, but like the people that aren't like, they're not, it is obvious when those people are in the crowd, right? They bring their iPads and they film with their iPads <laughs> and they're very shy. Sure. And they're, they are just fanboys, Right. You know, and it, well, we love it. They're great. Amazing fans. Right. Um, they buy two or three shirts. Sure. A sweatshirt. And our stuff's not cheap because we print everything on the highest quality we can. Right. S- sweatshirts are like 50 bucks, you know, and that's pretty for, for a band at yeah. that level to be selling sweatshirts for 50 bucks. Totally. And no one's, but no one's and, bad an eye. It's like, yeah, it's fine. I'll take one. Uh, we also sell tab books, you know, tab books go for 30 bucks a pop. We sure. have sold like 2000 tab books, Yeah, you know, combined. Um, you know, it's just, it's just astounding to see what they bring to the table and, and people took notice of that. So now, you know, we were able to, I think one big turning point for this band was doing a Coheed and Cambria tour. Okay. You know, our agent, John Lashnitz, uh, went out and, and did the work and uh, um, met with Blaze James, Coheed's manager, took him out to lunch, and Coheed was, he knew Coheed was going to be looking for support. Right. And uh, he said, hey, you know, you should go meet up with Blaze. And I'd, I'd known Blaze for a number of years and hadn't really done anything together. Uh, always respected the, the bands he's managed and mm-hmm. you know, kind of tried to model myself after what he's done because he's just been there and done that and he's been around, you know, from the app of driving days in the late totally. 90s. Yeah, yeah. You know, and... Uh, Always had the coolest roster, always. And uh, I went to lunch with Blaze, and we're like, we're sitting at Chipotle, you know, just talking and, uh, you know, just getting to know each other. And we're leaving Chipotle and walking back to his office. And uh, I said, oh, hey, you know, by the way, I need to bug you about your Coheed tour. And he goes, oh, Polyphia? And I was like, yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, they got the tour. Yeah. You know, and we went out on that tour. It was first of three. Mm-hmm. Coheed saves the day in Polyphia didn't make any sense sure you know and the guys went out and they were averaging three to five thousand dollars a night in merch that's insane dude you know thinking of like touring with like a saves the day you know love those guys yeah but stylistically yeah stylistically made no sense whatsoever none and you would think that those fans those fans are like our age Mm -hmm. you know so you think those people are like gonna look at that lineup and go "Uh, i'll show up at 9 30 right you know they were coming out early i went to a bunch of the shows and there's 30, 35 year old men in the crowd headbanging to Polyphia and then rushing to the merch table afterwards, buying t shirts, buying right. tablets. I found my new favorite band. Buying vinyl, you know, everything. And then, it, you know, the, they made such good friends with Coheed on that tour. They made lifelong friends with those guys. Right. And our drummer has Coheed tattoos. Sure. You know, so he was just. He's like, yeah, yeah. He was yeah gonna cry. I like you guys. He was going to cry when he found out he got the tour. <laughs> I think they actually taped it when they showed sure. him. Sure. He held it back. <laughs> and then they taped it when they told him. I think he almost started crying. It's amazing. So, you know, they, they go out and they win people over and they have this attitude. They definitely have attitude Mm -hmm. and they have this, we don't give a shit attitude about, about what they do. And they don't care what other people think because people have made fun of them their whole lives. 
for being the nerdy kids who play guitar or whatever like that. Right. And now they're up on stage playing in front of thousands of people in every, in multiple countries. Right. You know, so that's crazy. Yeah. That, it, it, like I said, it's just, it, it is, I find it a very interesting scene because it's like all of these, you know, whatever post rock, post hardcore, all of these band, well not post hardcore, but yeah, like post rock and all like once that started to come into the, the, the frame, I always was surprised. I'm just always continually surprised by like when you dig under a rock and you all of a sudden you find this band and you're like, oh, wow. And then you're like, oh, wow. A lot of people already pay attention to them, but like no one else speaks about them, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I've always just prided myself on is artist development. Yeah. You know, and early on in my career, when I first started doing this before the internet, it makes me sound very old. (laughs) Sure. Uh, Well, not before the internet, when AOL was still relevant. Exactly. You know, internet was in its infancy. Yeah, there was no, there was no MySpace. There was no nothing. You know, we literally found local, and I tell bands this all the time, and I actually lost clients because of this, because they get impatient. Um, you know, when we first started doing this, you know, one of the bands I modeled my stuff after was Papa Roach, mm-hmm. you know, from Sacramento. Those guys toured up and down the West Coast for six years. Right. As an unsigned band, they developed their image, they developed their sound, they started working with producers. They just booked these West Coast tours. We did trades with bands like System of a Down, sure. you know, uh, and, and countless Incubus and countless other young bands trying to break at the time. Right. And they would they would play the Troubadour, they would play the Whiskey, and then they would trade for these Sacramento shows where Pop Roach is drawing like a thousand people. Right. You know, and they would do this over and over and over again for five to six to seven years until somebody took notice and, you know, signed them. And that's what we used to do. We, you know, my career started with being a promoter on the East coast and then moving back to California. And it's just cause I knew I needed to be in California if I wanted to keep doing this. And, uh, you know, I found a local band that I thought had a chance and I put three or four years into it mm-hmm. and it ended in heartbreak, but we got the record deal. We got the publishing deal. Sure. You know, it was, it was personal issues that made the band fall apart, Mm -hmm. but then it also kind of catapulted me into this other level because I'd reached out to all these people. We had our agent was William Morris. You know, I had been working with Ted Gardner who worked with tool and Jane's addiction and co-founded Coachella. Got to work with him. I got to work with Bino at velvet hammer and Missy worth and, and people like that. And I got to become friends with Deftones and, you know, like just got, got into that circle to where right. people at least like, Hey, this guy at least might know what he's talking about. Totally. You know, so that in later years when I was working with hardcore, I was working with metal and stuff like that. I had this, this, this history and these, this, this, uh, contacts mm-hmm. with people to where I could call in favors and totally. I, could, I could get things, you know, I was able to get a Deftones tour for one of my acts, which is like the Holy grail for of a course. lot of these bands, you know what I mean? And I, but I waited, you know, 12 years to pull that favor. Of course, you know, right. It, it, was, it wasn't something I do all the time. But I was also able to, you know, like on a Whitechapel record, I was able to get Chino Moreno to do a guest spot mm-hmm. and actually come perform live with the band in L.A. Yeah. You know, and, and things like that. And that was a, a career highlight for my band. And sure. That was, it made me just so proud to be able to come through for them on that because that was just like a dream for them. Right. You know, and... uh you know, utilizing all that stuff has just been amazing, you know, and, and, and the friends I've made along the way. Yeah. You know, I, I've probably known you like 13, 14 years. Absolutely. You know I mean, and, uh, you know, still to this day, you know, talk to the Velvet Hammers and talk to the right. Morrises and the CAAs and people like that and who people who've known me since I was managing nothing but $100 bands. Totally. You know, so. Yeah, it's just, it's, I mean, it's all, it's all a long process. And I think, I mean, the, the biggest thing that any, anybody, you know, should take away from something like this is just the, uh, you know, you have to do what you do because you love it. 
And there, you cannot put these artificial timetables on yourself. No, no. And that's the problem with a lot of these bands these days is they think because 10, 20, 30,000 people care about them on social media, they think that they're just going to automatically blow up and they don't want to put the work in. Right. And the thing is like the work is just that much harder because nobody has an attention span these days. Right. So like if you don't put the work in, you're not going to keep their attention. And that includes making the new merch, changing your image, making your videos appealing, doing the guitar playthroughs. I had a client I lost because I used Polyphia as an example. And I was like, Hey, like you need to be more involved in YouTube. You need to be more involved in these playthroughs. You need to be more involved interacting with your fans. Sure. And they just didn't see it. Right. And now four years later, they're just now starting that stuff. Sure. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like when they could have been doing this stuff all along. Right. I mean, how hard is it to set up a couple of GoPros Nobody wants anything fancy. Yeah. You know, if anything, they want it to look organic and they want it to be in your bedroom or they want it to be in your office. Of course. Or your garage or whatever you play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and it's like some of these bands are behind the times on these things. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just, it's so much more involved now. You know, there's so many different revenue streams available to these people. You know, it's like another revenue stream for Polyphia is uh, guitar clinics. Sure. You know, those guys do get paid a lot of money to travel the world and sit in a room for an hour to an hour and a half and explain technique and theory and, and how to play and how they play the songs and to make people laugh. You know, if you guys go to China and Asia and they literally get rushed, like we have to bring security in, right? We have to bring, we have to take them out the back door because these people are just rampant and freaking out when they sure. get the, the kids have the same haircuts right. as these people. I've seen the pictures. It's pretty crazy. Our sponsors, Ibanez and stuff like that come back to us and they're like, Oh yeah, the guys in Asia, See, people are just freaking out over this, right? You know, and they they get paid really. That's just more handsomely, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. paid handsomely. Then they have signature guitars, so then they make money off the signature guitars. Sure, you know, and so it's just opening up all these other other revenue streams. Yeah, you know, that's that's been really key in 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 keeping these bands going, and and you know. I just see them. They just keep going up. Right. Totally. Yeah. Keep it, keeping them healthy and then keeping it moving forward. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's super cool. Yeah, exactly. Well, dude, thank you. Yeah. This course. has been super fun. Yeah, I appreciate no, it. No, I love this. <laughs> okay. That was an awesome conversation with Mr. Sean Carano. Thank you very much for coming over and hanging out and doing this. It was, uh, yeah, it was just fun. It was a great chat. I just, I really, when I pitch an idea to somebody and they like completely get where I'm coming from, it just, uh, you know, it feels great <laughs> because then you're just like, oh man, maybe I'm not so crazy for thinking this is a fun idea. So that is that. Thank you very much, Sean. And next week we have a really engaging conversation with uh, a multiple guest on the 100 Words podcast. So if you have heard him speak here before, that's, you know, now, now this will be the third time he comes on the show. But this obviously is the, the, uh, the you know, record label imprint of what 100 Words or Less is. Uh, Finn McKenty. He uh, is a not only a good friend, but we get in really in-depth about what media partnerships look like because you know whatever you you have probably read music magazines at some point have probably read music websites um there's a transaction that goes on there that is really interesting and nothing nefarious at all like you know because sometimes people (laughs) read into me setting something up like that but no this is just kind of the way that the business works and finn walks me through a partnership that he had when he worked at a a company called creative live uh, and with alternative press and we get you just really in depth with uh, specifics there. So it's a fun conversation that I can't wait to release next week. And then the final episode of this be specific series 
is a mailbag episode, the long-awaited mailbag episode. I've collected a ton of great questions about the music industry as a whole and just kind of, you know, specific sort of erythral questions. There are some that are like bigger (laughs) than just the specific like, hey, how much did this thing do or whatever? Um, So yeah, that's what we're doing for the next uh, two weeks. Okay, now please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Hi, I'm Esther Dean. I've made my life by writing songs like Fireworks by Katy Perry, Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, What's My Name by Rihanna, just to name a few. And now I'm having an absolute blast sharing some of the knowledge that I've learned with upcoming songwriters on Songland on NBC. I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast, giving you some new insight into the magical art of songwriting as told by some of the best in the business and also the pioneers and the up-and-comers who will be shaping the hits you'll be listening to for years. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central, and join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.